chapter ten part two of the ordeal of mark twain this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. the ordeal of mark twain by van wick brooks chapter ten let somebody else begin part two the ironical part of this story for it is worth pursuing is that mark twain the sober individual had for england an exaggerated affection and admiration his first hour in england was an hour of delight he records of rapture and ecstasy i would a good deal rather live here if i could get the rest of you over he writes frankly in eighteen seventy two and mr paine adds that taking the snug island as a whole its people its institutions its institutions observe its fair rural aspects he had found in it only delight that was true to the end of his days against a powerful instinct he defended even the boer war because he so admired the genius of english administration he had personal reasons for this indeed in the affection with which england always welcomed him on no occasion in his own country we are told of his first english lecture tour had he won such a complete triumph and how many of those triumphs there were as a rule says mr paine english readers of culture critical readers rose to an understanding of mark twain's literary value with greater promptness than did the same class of readers at home indeed says mr howells it was in england that mark twain was first made to feel that he had come into his rightful heritage did his feeling for england spring from this who can say but certainly it was intense and profound early in his life he planned as we have seen a book on england and gave it up because he was afraid its inevitable humor would offend those who had taken him into their hearts and homes why then safely enthroned in america did he merely because he was annoyed with matthew arnold so passionately desire to pry the english nation up one key to this question we have already found but it requires a deeper explanation and the incident of this earlier book suggests it mark twain's literary motives and it was this as i have said that made him the typical pioneer were purely personal emerson wrote his english traits before the civil war in reporting his conversation with walter savage lander he made a remark that could not fail to hurt the feelings of robert southey what was his reason what was his excuse that southey and lander were public figures and that their values were values of public importance 
emerson in short instinctively regarded his function his loyalties and his responsibilities as those of the man of letters the servant of humanity mark twain no less typical of his own half-century took with him to england the pioneer system of values in which everything was measured by the ideal of neighborliness if he couldn't write without hurting people's feelings he wouldn't write at all for always like the good westerner he thought of his audience as the group of people immediately surrounding him in america on the other hand the situation was precisely reversed what would please his hartford neighbors who had taken him into their hearts and homes that was the point now and they or the less cultivated majority of them could not see england through the eyes of a connecticut yankee damned enough something mark twain knew he wanted to satirize he was boiling with satirical emotion and while the artist in him wished to satirize not england but america the pioneer in him wished to satirize not america but england and as usual the pioneer won another motive corroborated this decision he had published mr paine tells us nothing since the huck finn story and his company was badly in need of a new book by an author of distinction also it was highly desirable to earn money for himself elsewhere we read that the connecticut yankee was a book badly needed by his publishing business with which to maintain its prestige and profit mark twain the author we see had to serve the prestige and profit of mark twain the publisher he was obliged in short to write something that would be popular with the american masses how happy that publisher must have been for the provocation matthew arnold offered him mark twain on the top wave of his own capitalistic undertakings was simply expressing the exuberance of his own character not as an artist but as an industrial pioneer in the person of that east hartford yankee who sets out to make king arthur's england a going concern who can mistake this animus look at the opportunities here for a man of knowledge brains pluck and enterprise to sail in and grow up with the country the grandest field that ever was and all my own not a competitor prying up the english nation ends as we see with a decided general effect of patting the american nation on the back the satirist has joined forces with the great popular flood of his generation he has become that flood he asks neither the why nor the whither of his going he knows only that he wants to be in the swim if at that moment 
the artist in mark twain had had only the tail of one eye awake he would have laughed at the spectacle of himself drawing in dollars in proportion to the magnificence of his noble and patriotic defense of what everybody else less nobly perhaps but no less patriotically was defending also frankness is a jewel said mark twain only the young can afford it precisely at the moment when he was writing to robert ingersoll that remarkable letter which displayed a thirst for crude atheism comparable only to the thirst for crude alcohol of a man who has been too long deprived of his normal ration of simple beer he was at work on tom sawyer it is not a boy's book at all he says it will only be read by adults it is only written for adults six months later we find him adding i finally concluded to cut the sunday school speech down to the first two sentences leaving no suggestion of satire since the book is to be for boys and girls tell the truth or trump but get the trick almost incredible in fact to anyone who is familiar with the normal processes of the literary mind was mark twain's fear of public opinion that fear which was the complement of his prevailing desire for success and prestige in later life it was his regular habit to write two letters one of which he suppressed when he was addressing anyone who was not an intimate friend upon any subject about which his instinctive feelings clashed with the popular view these unmailed letters in which as mr paine says he had let himself go merely to relieve his feelings and to restore his spiritual balance accumulated in such a remarkable way that finally as if he were about to publish them mark twain for his own amusement wrote an introduction to the collection will anybody contend he says that a man can say to such masterful anger as that go and be obeyed he is not to mail this letter he understands that and so he can turn on the whole volume of his wrath there is no harm he is only writing it to get the bile out so to speak he is a volcano imagining himself erupting does no good he must open up his crater and pour out in reality his intolerable charge of lava if he would get relief sometimes the load is so hot and so great that one writes as many as three letters before he gets down to a mailable one a very angry one a less angry one and an argumentative one with hot embers in it here and there tragic mark twain irresponsible child that he is he does not even ask himself 
whether he is doing right or wrong so unquestioningly has he accepted the code of his wife and his friends that superb passion the priceless passion of the satirist is simply being wasted like the accumulated steam from an engine whose machinery has broken down and cannot employ it turn to one of these occasions when the charge of lava boiled up in mark twain compare the two unsent messages he wrote and the message he finally sent to colonel george harvey when the latter invited him to dine with the russian emissaries to the portsmouth conference in nineteen o five to understand them we must recall mark twain's opinion that the premature end of the russo-japanese war was entitled to rank as the most conspicuous disaster in political history feeling as he did that if the war had lasted a month longer the russian autocracy would have fallen he was bitterly opposed to the conference that had been arranged by roosevelt here are the two telegrams he did not send to colonel harvey i am still a cripple otherwise i should be more than glad of this opportunity to meet those illustrious magicians who with the pen have annulled obliterated and abolished every high achievement of the japanese sword and turned the tragedy of a tremendous war into a gay and blithesome comedy if i may let me in all respect and honor salute them as my fellow humorists i taking third place as becomes one who was not born to modesty but by diligence and hard work is acquiring it mark dear colonel no this is a love feast when you call a lodge of sorrow send for me mark and this is the telegram he sent which pleased count witt so much that he announced he was going to show it to the czar to colonel harvey i am still a cripple otherwise i should be more than glad of this opportunity to meet the illustrious magicians who came here equipped with nothing but a pen and with it have divided the honors of the war with the sword it is fair to presume that in thirty centuries history will not get done admiring these men who attempted what the world regarded as impossible and achieved it mark twain another example in nineteen o five he wrote a war prayer a bitterly powerful fragment of concentrated satire hear what mr paine says about it to dan beard who dropped in to see him clemens read the war prayer stating that he had read it to his daughter jean and others who had told him he must not print it for it would be regarded as sacrilege still 
you are going to publish it are you not clemens pacing up and down the room in his dressing-gown and slippers shook his head no he said i have told the whole truth in that and only dead men can tell the truth in this world it can be published after i am dead he did not care adds mr paine to invite the public verdict that he was a lunatic or even a fanatic with a mission to destroy the illusions and traditions and conclusions of mankind the conclusions of mankind and mark twain was a contemporary of william james there was nothing in this prayer that any european writer would have hesitated for a moment to print well i have a family to support wrote this incorrigible playboy who was always ready to blow thirty or forty thousand dollars up the chimney of some new mechanical invention i have a family to support and i can't afford this kind of dissipation finally there was the famous episode of the gorky dinner mark twain was always solicitous for the russian people he wrote stinging rebukes to the czar rebukes in the swinburnian manner but informed with a far more genuine passion he dreamed of a great revolution in russia he was always ready to work for it when therefore maxim gorky came to america to collect funds for this purpose mark twain gladly offered his aid presently however it became known that gorky had brought with him a woman without benefit of clergy hotel after hotel with all the pious wrath that is so admirably characteristic of broadway turned them into the street did mark twain hesitate even for a moment did anything stir in his conscience did it occur to him that great fame and position carry with them a certain obligation that it is the business of leaders to prevent great public issues from being swamped in petty personal ones apparently not the author's dinner organized in gorky's honor was hastily and with mark twain's consent abandoned an army of reporters says mr paine was chasing clemens and howells who appear on that page for all the world like a pair of terrified children the russian revolution was entirely forgotten in this more lively more intimate domestic interest what was mark twain's own comment on the affair laws he wrote in a private memorandum can be evaded and punishment escaped but an openly transgressed custom brings sure punishment the penalty may be unfair unrighteous illogical and a cruelty no matter it will be inflicted just the same 
the efforts which have been made in gorky's justification are entitled to all respect because of the magnanimity of the motive back of them but i think that the ink was wasted custom is custom it is built of brass boiler iron granite facts reasonings arguments have no more effect upon it than the idle winds have upon gibraltar what would emerson or thoreau have said fifty years before of such an argument such an assertion of the futility of the individual reason in the face of brass boiler iron granite and mob emotion it is perhaps the most pitifully abject confession ever written by a famous writer this is what became of the great american satirist the voltaire the swift the rabelais of the gilded age if the real prophet is he who attacks the stultifying illusions of mankind nothing on the other hand makes one so popular as to be the moral denouncer of what everybody else denounces of the real and difficult evils of society mark twain to be sure knew little he attacked monarchy yes but monarchy was already an obsolescent evil and in any case this man who took such delight in walking with kings as the advertisements say in actual life never attacked the one monarch who really was as it appeared secure in his seat the kaiser he attacked monarchy because as he said it was an eternal denial of the numerical mass of the nation he had become in fact the incarnation of that numerical mass the majority which in the face of all his personal impulses he could not consider as anything but invariably right he could not be the spokesman of the immensities and the eternities as carlyle had been for he knew them not he could not be like anatole france the spokesman of justice for indeed he had no ideal his only criterion was personal and that was determined by his friends on the whole as mr paine says clemens wrote his strictures more for relief than to print and when he printed them it was because he had public opinion behind him revolt as he might and he never ceased to revolt he was the same man who at the psychological moment in the innocents abroad by disparaging europe and its art and its glamorous past by disparaging in short the history of the human spirit had flattered the expanding impulse of industrial america in the face of his own genius in the face of his own essential desire 
he had pampered for a whole generation that national self-complacency which matthew arnold quite accurately described as vulgar and not only vulgar but retarding glance at those last melancholy satirical fragments he wrote in his old age those fragments which he never published which he never even cared to finish but a few paragraphs of which appear in mr paine's biography we note in them all the gestures of the great unfulfilled satirist he was meant to be but they are empty gestures only an impotent anger informs them mark twain's preoccupations are those merely of a bitter and disillusioned child he wishes to take vengeance upon the jehovah of the presbyterians to whom his wife has obliged him to pay homage but the jehovah of the presbyterians alas no longer interests humanity he is beset by all the theological obsessions of his childhood in missouri he has never even read literature and dogma he does not know that the morbid fears of that old western village of his have ceased to trouble the moral conscience of the world he imagines that he can still horrify us with his antiquated blasphemies he has lived completely insulated from all the real currents of thought in his generation the human being he says in one of his notes needs to revise his ideas again about god most of the scientists have done it already but most of them don't care to say so he imagines we see that all the scientists have like himself lived in hartford and elmira and married ladies like mrs clemens and as according to mr paine nobody ever dared to contradict him or tell him anything he never dazzled as he was by his own fame discovered his mistake the religious folly you were born in you will die in he wrote once he meant that he had never himself faced anything out was he or wasn't he a presbyterian he really never knew if he had matured those theological preoccupations constantly imaged in his jokes and anecdotes about heaven hell and saint peter would have simply dropped away from his mind his inability to express them had fixed them there and his environment kept him constantly reacting against them to the end think of those chapters in his autobiography which he said were going to make people's hair curl several of them at least we are told dealt with infant damnation but whose hair in this twentieth century is going to curl over infant damnation 
how little he had observed the real changes in public opinion this man who lived instinctively all his life long in the atmosphere of the western sunday school to-morrow he tells mr paine in nineteen o six i mean to dictate a chapter which will get my heirs and assigns burnt alive if they venture to print it this side of a d two thousand six which i judge they won't and what he dictates is an indictment of the orthodox god he often spoke of the edition of a d two thousand six saying that it would make a stir when it comes out and even went so far as we have seen as to negotiate for the publication of his memoirs one hundred years after his death he might have spared himself the trepidation it is probable that by nineteen seventy five those memoirs will seem to the publishing world a very doubtful commercial risk mark twain's view of man in short was quite rudimentary he considered life a mistake and the human animal the contemptible machine he had found him that argues the profundity of his own temperament the depth and magnitude of his own tragedy but it argues little else the absurdity of man consisted in mark twain's eyes in his ridiculous conception of heaven and his conceit in believing himself the creator's pet but surely those are not the significant absurdities his heaven is like himself strange interesting astonishing grotesque he wrote in one of those pseudo swiftian letters from the earth which he dictated with such fervor to mr paine i give you my word it has not a single feature in it that he actually values it consists utterly and entirely of diversions which he cares next to nothing about here on the earth yet he is quite sure he will like in heaven most men do not sing most men cannot sing most men will not stay where others are singing if it be continued more than two hours note that only about two men in a hundred can play upon a musical instrument and not four in a hundred have any wish to learn how set that down many men pray not many of them like to do it all people sane or insane like to have variety in their lives monotony quickly wearies them now then you have the facts you know what men don't enjoy well they have invented a heaven out of their own heads all by themselves guess what it is like how far does that satirical gesture carry us it is too rustically simple in its animus and its presuppositions about the tastes of humanity are quite erroneous 
to sing to play and to pray in some fashion or other are universal admirable and permanent impulses in man what is the moral even of that marvellous odyssey of huckleberry finn that all civilization is inevitably a hateful error something that stands in the way of life and thwarts it as the civilization of the gilded age had thwarted mark twain but that is the illusion or the disillusion of a man who has never really known what civilization is who in the stolen white elephant like h g wells in his early tales delights in the spectacle of a general smash-up of a world which he cannot imagine as worth saving because he has only seen it as a fool's paradise what is the philosophy of the man that corrupted hadleyburg that every man is strong as mr paine says until his price is named but that is not true to the discriminating sense at all it is an army of fifty-two boys that the connecticut yankee collects in order to start the english republic in childhood and childhood alone in short had mark twain ever perceived the vaunted nobility of the race the victim of an arrested development the victim of a social order which had given him no general sense of the facts of life and no sense whatever of its possibilities he poured vitriol promiscuously over the whole human scene but that is not satire that is pathology mark twain's imagination was gigantesque his eye in later life was always looking through the small end or the large end of a telescope he oscillated between the posture of gulliver in lilliput and the posture of gulliver in brobdingnag that natural tendency toward a magnification or a minification of things human is one of the earmarks of the satirist in order to be effectual however it requires a measure an ideal norm which mark twain with his rudimentary sense of proportion never attained it was not fear alone then but an artistic sense also that led him to suppress and indeed to leave incomplete most of the works in which this tendency manifested itself one recalls his three thousand years among the microbes passages of which have been published by mr paine glance at another example i have imagined he said once a man three thousand miles high picking up a ball like the earth and looking at it and holding it in his hand it would be about like a billiard ball to him and he would turn it over in his hand and rub it with his thumb 
and where he rubbed over the mountain ranges he might say there seems to be some slight roughness here but i can't detect it with my eye it seems perfectly smooth to look at there we have the swiftian the rabelaisian note the rabelaisian frame for the picture that fails to emerge the fancy exists in his mind but he is able to do nothing with it all he can do is to express a simple contempt to rule human life as it were out of court mark twain never completed these fancies precisely one can only suppose because they invariably led into this cul-de-sac if life is really futile then writing is futile also the true satirist however futile he may make life seem never really believes it futile his interest in its futility is itself a desperate registration of some instinctive belief that it might be that it could be full of significance that in fact it is full of significance to him what makes things petty is an ever-present sense of their latent grandeur that sense mark twain had never attained in consequence his satirical gestures remained mere passes in the air end of chapter ten part two recording by lucretia b